This is Kevin Flood from America's Web Radio, the classic car show, and I'm with the director of Brooklyn's Museum, Alan Wynn. Good afternoon, Alan. Afternoon, Kevin. It's good of you to give us your time. I know you're a very busy man, um, so I'll get straight on with it, really. What's your earliest automotive memory? Um, probably um, at the age of about three, um, uh, going on holiday in my parents' uh, Morris Minor um, uh, on the in the South Island of New Zealand, where I was brought up, and uh, I remember being um, terrified by the uh, uniquely New Zealand combined road and rail bridges uh, on uh, some of the roads where you actually uh, went over the same uh, uh, same bridges as trains did with the tracks laid down the center of the, the bridge and my older brother managed to terrify me by saying that a train would probably hit us while we were on the bridge. Wow, that's, um, that's unique. So you're actually driving on the tracks themselves or is there a kind of roadway... Portion. No, it had a, uh, they had um, uh, they, they were uh, sort of uh, wooden truss bridges um, and simply uh, so so the normal wooden decking, um, uh, but lay, laid into the wooden decking uh, was uh, yeah, the the single track um, uh, rail tracks. Hmm. Uh, those in those days in New Zealand, was it mainly British cars there, or were there cars from from other parts uh, of the world? Very much um, either. Uh, either British or um, uh, Canadian-originated American. Uh, so there was a lot of pre-war American stuff around. Cars in those days uh, in New Zealand lasted forever. The imports of cars were very strictly controlled. Mm. Um, and uh, unless you had Commonwealth uh, preference, very difficult to, to bring in uh, continental uh, stuff. So it was all you know, either British or um, American via Canada. I believe eventually there were one or two indigenous New Zealand manufacturers with some sort of four-wheel drive type things, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, there, were, there, were, there was a, an outfit called, I think it was a Trekker, who built a, um, a thing based on the Skoda um, Octavia. Um, and then there was, there was a lot of New Zealand um, uh, uh, assembly from uh, completely knocked down kits of... Um, uh, of British Australian um, uh, cars, uh, all, all the major manufacturers uh, had assembly plants to get round uh, import tariffs, uh, and uh, so quite quite un- uneconomic small assembly uh, operations. Uh, the biggest one was probably uh, in the uh, uh, in the sixties, I suppose. Uh, uh, Leyland, then uh, BL, set mm. a big plant in Nelson, which ended up with Honda. Uh, but yeah, General Motors had an assembly plant. Ford, Morris, and Austin had separate ones, even though they were assembling basically the same vehicles. Uh, uh, Standard Triumph, uh, yeah, they were all at it. Um, it's all died now, but uh, yeah, no, there were just one or two uh, attempts at building a, a New Zealand uh, a unique vehicle. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a bit. I own um, a 1929 Ford Model A that I imported from the States, and obviously, if I bought one from this country, the engine would be considerably smaller because of the horsepower tax. So I'm assuming it's kind of along those sort of lines on top of the import tax, I guess. Yeah, well, that, um, uh, New Zealand, fortunately, we never had that um, uh, that miserable little uh, 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 two-liter uh, Model A. Um, all the all the American stuff tended to come with the uh, uh, the, the full-size engine, um, uh, so that was quite good. But it was really ju- it was just the, the tax on the whole importing of a uh, uh, of a 
Lindsay vehicle, um, and there were all sorts of amazing dodges in the 1960s mm. where you could uh, you could buy things if you if you held funds in an overseas bank account, and the government was always desperate for foreign currency, and uh, so they came up with these schemes where you could uh, use overseas funds to buy. Part of, uh, to pay part of the cost of a new motor car, uh, mm-hmm. but you had to repatriate the same amount in uh, in loose funds as well. Yeah, very complex. If you, if you yeah, but you know, it, it meant that yeah, if you had overseas funds, you could buy cars otherwise yeah. that weren't otherwise available. And uh, yeah, but it was very strictly controlled. And as I say, cars lasted forever. And uh, yeah, well into the uh, 1970s, uh, people were still using Morris Miners and so forth as everyday motor cars. Um, you know, when we were students, things like Model A Fords were the uh, the sort of standard uh, student issue, uh, not because we were hot rodders or anything, but that's what everybody drove. Yeah, well, I can understand that. What was your, was your earliest um, car influence? What kind of got you interested in cars? And I know you've got a huge background in aviation, amongst other things, but what was your earliest car influence, the first thing you saw, the thing that influenced you? I think, I think that, I mean, the, the lasting one undoubtedly would have been, um, uh, I, uh, yeah, we we saw a few old uh, cars around. Um, yeah, the the old car movement was sort of starting, I suppose, when I was a when I was a kid. Um, going uh, treating them as uh, collection items and uh, I remember being taken off to a Pennzoil rally uh, in Picton at the top end of the South Island in 1958 I think it was and I saw my first vintage Bentley mm. and um, it was just one of those moments you know, uh, pe- uh, people around the family had Ford V8s and old Chev Fleet masters and loads of Morris Miners in the, in the extended family and there was this thing that was just so totally different from anything like that um, and uh, that that really uh, seared itself on my memory um, and uh, you know, pretty much from that time on I wanted a, uh, a vintage Bentley, it took me uh, about another 27 or 8 years or something before I finally got one but uh, yeah, that, that was a that was big influence and I think the other uh, real thing that got me the first motorsport I ever was um, the annual races on the uh, on the beach uh, in Nelson uh, every uh, Christmas mm-hmm. New Year period we had the, these fabulous uh, sand racing uh, events uh, with uh, with amazing specials of all sorts and uh, so yeah that was that was where my very first uh, sort of involvement with and attraction to uh, motor racing came from. Excellent. I was going to. The next question was your favourite car, but I think you just answered that for me. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 I mean, yeah, the, the, the car that I love more than any other that I've that I've owned over the years. I, I've owned a three-liter Bentley for the last thirty years, and that is, um, yeah, that that's sort of uh, that is really part of the family. Uh, first vintage Bentley I ever actually got to drive, uh, and I, I drove it before long before I bought it, it belonged to a friend, so it's sort of, yeah, yeah I, I've lived uh, in that car since 1980, so, yeah, it's sort of, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a real uh, thing in my mind. Um, yeah, it, 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 it wrestles in my affections, of course, with the uh, the most wonderful pre-war British racing car of all, the uh, the Napier Railton, of which I am the fortunate um, 
I guess, custodian and a very, uh, very, very fortunate frequent driver. I've seen you driving it. I was lucky enough to be over two very lucky times over at Brooklands when one of the days when you had it up on the banking when you were doing, I think, the press launch for the uh, announcement of the redevelopment. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and also I was there for the opening day of the 4D um, ride as well, and I was lucky enough to be one of the first people to be filmed um, sitting and enjoying the brilliant attraction. So, yeah, I can understand that, and the guys working on this show that I'm doing the interview for, that's the first car they asked me about. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. Very important car to us. It's a marvellous beast that one <laughs> yes. that must be uh, that must be some uh, a wonderful visceral experience to drive i would think as well it is uh, i mean it, of all the um airplane engine specials and i've driven a few now over the years it is the most completed it, you know, because it was designed from scratch to be what it is um it's the most beautifully balanced well harmonized uh, it, uh, motor cars, uh, you know, it, it has exemplary uh, road manners, uh, you know, it steers well, handles well, um, but, but short on stopping power, um, <laughs> you know, phenomenal um, uh, performance, uh, um, and such a complete motor car, um, it, it's an absolutely fabulous thing, and uh, it's something that we're hoping to share um, with uh, the American audience next year uh, because uh, 2016 will be the 80th anniversary of the uh, the great um, battle between John Cobb and Ab Jenkins on the Salt Flats at, uh, at Bonneville uh, over the World 24-hour record and uh, the Railton became the first car ever to average 150 mile an hour for 24 hours and uh, we're um, uh, working on bringing it back to the salt uh, in September next year and, uh, and running it there to, to celebrate the anniversary of, uh, of that great feat. I would imagine that they'll, they'll maybe want you to take it to Pebble Beach as well while you're over there, I guess. Yeah, we had it at Pebble Beach in 2007, and certainly um, if we're going to go to the trouble of shipping it all the way to the States, um, uh, and certainly over that side of the country, as mm. it would be going, um, yes, it would make all sorts of sense if um, I can persuade Pebble Beach to um, uh, uh, to give it an invite. Um, yeah, we'd love to have it back there. Yeah, and no, I, I went a few years ago, actually, and it was um, my kind of... Uh, I realised how far away I was in terms of cars, but it's, it is a bit of an experience, I must admit, but it's it's kind of out of my price bracket somewhat. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've been very lucky. I, I've uh, been a judge at Pebble Beach yeah, uh, for yeah. uh, several years now, I think uh, seven or eight years of it. So, uh, yeah, so I go every year, and, uh, yeah, it is a, um, uh, it's an amazing event. It's very different from anything you get uh, on this side of the pond, but, um, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, 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 a very very special event, and, uh, and certainly with uh, hugely knowledgeable audiences and so forth, and uh, uh, I- ideal for for us to uh, publicise what we're doing, which of course is the reason why we're taking it to the states, no, to, indeed, uh, indeed. is to publicise what we're doing and uh, and raise money. I, th- I think it's really important, you know, from our point of view, our philosophy here at the museum is um, you know, anything that is capable of safely being run, uh, we intend to run it or rebuild it to the condition where it can be run yeah. and uh, you know, while we don't 
don't do wild things with the rails and we don't actually race it. Um, yeah, two wheel brakes with a two ton 500 horsepower <laughs> motor car is not ideal. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, to us, it's really important that people get to see and hear uh, these cars in action so they understand what they're like. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's why we do the, uh, the demonstration work we do at places like. Uh, the Festival of Speed and uh, why we you know, we ran it on the uh, on the beach at Pendine uh, back in July uh, you know, when we had it in the States in 2007 we ran it at Laguna Seca you know, let people really see and appreciate the car for what it is definitely and I, and I think particularly younger people um, need to see these things just the, the sheer quality of engineering and stuff that was going on back in the day because um, because i think every most of them think everything was invented 10 years ago and it's all plastic so it is really yeah, no, important uh, I and, think. and that's a really important part of our story at the moment with the uh the aircraft factory and racetrack rev- right. revival project that we're working on that's all about inspiring uh kids we're going to take a break and we'll be back on the classic car show right after these messages Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Hi, this is Kevin Flood on America's Web Radio. Welcome back. I'm with Alan Wynne, director of the Brooklyn's Museum. He stems of science, technology, engineering, maths, you know, get, getting, getting them involved in this sort of thing, and certainly... 
yeah, when you when you let kids uh, see and appreciate these cars get up close to them. We had the Railton in Hong Kong uh, last month for the Hong Kong Classic. Um, and uh, it was absolutely rapturous reception there. People in, uh, there had never seen anything like uh, the Railton, and uh, you have several hundred people standing in a tent while uh, we drive the thing in and up onto a plinth, and uh, your kids just completely wide eyes in amazement uh, that something like this could be there. You know, this is a real sort of fire-breathing monster. It is. I mean, it's incredible. Um, and I, I feel very, very privileged that I saw it the two times uh, I was lucky enough to see it for quite a long time on the bank in that day I, I believe that was probably you driving it that day some of the time I think. Uh, it probably was if we, yeah. were, if we were doing that work with it yes yeah, yeah no it was interesting going back to yourself have you ever had any seller's remorse about a car that you wish you'd kept over the years <sighs> i i sometimes um uh, uh on a um uh on a, on a dark wet night when i'm driving home in the rain in the bentley i think you know i should probably uh have kept or gone and found another uh the first ever owned um was a uh immediate post-war two and a half litre riley oh, and i still look back at that thing it was just student transport at the time uh, and it was just it it just ticked so many boxes it was uh, not an hour car. Um, it did it in comfort and style and everything else. And uh, yeah, well, it wasn't one of the great cars, but it was just a, it, it, it just a really good, practical, classic motor car. And uh, it's somewhere in the uh, in the in the future when I've got a bit more time and a bit more space in the garage and so forth, I'll probably buy another one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What do you what do you have at the moment? You have your Bentley. Do you have any other sort of classical? At the, at the moment, um, uh, ju just the Bentley. Now, um, uh, at one stage, I was trying to run a stable of, uh, uh, of three pre-war cars, and I just um, uh, I, I just didn't have the time to look after them. Uh, you know, um, you know, running Brooklyn's Museum is a is a very full-time job, um, and indeed, uh, when I when I was um, trying to keep multiple vehicles running um, I was running uh, Flight International magazine and I just didn't have the time uh, you know, I was heavily involved uh, you know, being on the committee of the sports car club uh, you know, travelling a lot and all that sort of thing and uh, you really do need time uh, to be able to just you know, work on things uh, do, doing little bits and pieces uh, you know, uh, a few minutes now and then is not enough to to look after a car you know, several cars properly I mean, uh, you know, the car thrives on neglect most of the time I think because you know, I just don't have time to get at it and do work that I should really be doing on it yeah. looking at yeah. the as, as you said it's a, it's a really busy and, and full-time job running the museum but also i guess in terms of researching your background a little bit you are heavily into aviation and vehicles so it must be somewhere near your ideal job apart from obviously it's very busy yeah i mean it, I mean, it is difficult to imagine um a a better job i think um yeah i've been very lucky over the years i i worked in the uh, in the media for for 30 years um and got to run some amazing uh establishment magazines um and certainly the best two were commercial motor and, and flight international i ran flight for 14 years um and uh, i i that they were amazing things to do you know yeah traveling the world seeing people uh, trying things out um that that was pretty great but you know so there's something about 
working in a place like Brooklyn's uh, where you've got yeah, it's not an invented bit of history nobody sort of suddenly said you know wouldn't it be nice if we had a museum somewhere and put one up, this is where things really happened. You know, this is where eighteen and a half thousand aeroplanes were assembled and flown. Uh, it's where modern motor racing, as we know it now, really, really started. You know, this was the first place uh, yeah, purpose-built for uh, racing on a circuit. Uh, the rules of motor racing, as uh, established in 1907 by the Brooklyn's Automobile Racing Club, are the ones to a large extent, the, the, the fundamental rules of, uh, of modern racing, you know, uh, and all those terms that were invented uh, or first used in racing terms here, like, you know, having a cluck of the course, having stewards, having cars in the paddock, um, you know, all, all those things started off here, their, their first applications to motor racing having been borrowed from horse racing. So so here you're, you're surrounded by by real history um, and uh, we're just so lucky that we've got you know, a 32 acre site on which we've been able to assemble you know, an amazing collection uh, of aircraft, most of them with strong Brooklyn's history, most of them are you know, not unworthy built here uh, and some amazing motor cars and bikes, uh, motorbikes, uh, and the buildings themselves you know, the, that survived from either the motor racing or aviation years. To have that all together here, you know, it's it's such a complete uh, snapshot of history, and with so much real history behind it, uh, you know, that uh, you sort of feel. Uh, this sort of amazing sensation when you drive into work every morning and you see this stuff. And the great thing about working here is that uh, because we're a museum, we're dedicated to restoring things, bringing things back to life, doing things. Um, you know, every week I look here and I see something that we've done better this week than we did last week. Uh, something's in better condition. We've opened something. We've done something new, and that, that's an immensely satisfying. Uh, feeling, especially when it's in a subject area or subject areas that you love. Yeah, could you give the listeners just a few highlights? On the on the car side, um, apart from the Railton, um, some of the highlight uh, motor cars uh, that we have um, are things like the uh, the big four and a half litre single seater straight eight Duesenberg, uh, which was the fourth fastest car around the uh, the circuit. Uh, in period, driven by Whitney Strait and then by uh, Duller. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, a pretty amazing car, which is coming towards the end of a uh, of a very protracted uh, rebuild. Um, we acquired um, uh, just a few years ago one of the uh, fabulous uh, straight eight one and a half liter uh, supercharged Grand Prix Delages, um, which were the uh, world champions in 1927. And the the particular car we have was second in the second British Grand Prix here in 19. 19- 27. Um, we had uh, on long-term uh, loan, uh, it's been here from the beginning of the museum, uh, the wonderful 1912 Dietrich uh, Grand Prix car, a 15-litre four-cylinder chain-drive monster. We've um, finally managed to get back into full running order and was seen out on the, uh, on the scene in full running order for the first time in many years this summer. Motorcycles. Quite quite a lot of the uh, wheeled stuff we have is on um, uh, on long term or permanent loan. Um, in the motorbikes, for instance, we have the uh, 
the works uh, Scrapper Bruff Superior, which is a sister bike to the one on which Noel Pope set the uh, the all-time uh, motorcycle lap record here. Um, when we get onto aeroplane, we uh, throw the the two uh, greatest aeronautical exhibits we have, um, or three, probably uh, the uh, Vickers Wellington uh, bomber, which uh, was ditched in Loch Ness in 1940 and uh, brought back up in 1985 and restored here. Uh, probably the most heroic volunteer-led registration uh, restoration we've ever done. Um, and obviously a Brooklyn's built aeroplane, Brooklyn's designed. Um, uh, we have a Hawker Hurricane, also Brooklyn's built. Uh, first Hurricane flew here in 1935, and uh, we have uh, one with a with a wonderful wartime uh, history finally shot down. That's just coming back together. I've just been uh, dealing with a an undercarriage problem on that today. Uh, we've got an engine uh, rebuilt and ready to run in it. It's just going to be a taxiable uh, exhibit rather than a full-flying one, but uh, very exciting to have that coming back together. And, of course, um, the uh, the modern highlight of our uh, of our collection is a Concorde, because uh, yeah. a third of every Concorde was uh, built at uh, Brooklyn's. Uh, everything forward of the wing and everything behind the wing was built here. The uh, the uh, electrical looms for the uh, for the whole aeroplane were assembled here. Um, the uh, the British end of the Concorde program was run from here. And uh, we're very lucky to have uh, first of the eight British production Concords on show, uh, having been rescued in a heroic dismantling and uh, rebuild. And we also have uh, the world's only functioning Concorde simulator uh, here, uh, the one on which all the BA uh, pilots uh, did initial and continuity training uh, throughout the service history or uh, the 20, 27 years that Concorde was in service. All of the BA pilots uh, worked on this uh, simulator, and we now have a dozen Concorde pilots acting as instructors on it. And, uh, but that's pretty exciting stuff. We have some uh, more elderly um, uh, aircraft, uh, quite a few of them uh, replica airframes. But for instance, we have a uh, we have a SOP with Camel uh, on which we have a fully running uh, Clerget 130 horsepower. Uh, rotary engine which runs frequently in uh, dem demonstrations here. We're just having rebuilt for us at the moment three-cylinder Anzani engine for our uh, Blario 11 near the, uh, the English Channel type uh, Blario monoplane. Uh, we're just uh, putting together a, a genuine pre-First War uh, Anzani engine for that so that it can be heard running again. So yeah, yeah we have a, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff on the pure aeroplane side and then of course in the uh, in the infrastructure that goes with um, aeroplanes we have one of our highlights is the amazing high altitude research chamber which was uh, built for Barnes Wallace in his later capacity as head of um, R&D for Vickers from 1946 onwards. He, he uh, at the time when the uh, Americans were breaking the sound barrier for the first time with the Bell X-1, uh, Wallace was already on to uh, how could we get to Australia in five hours uh, by flying high and fast and managed to get Vickers to build him this extraordinary vacuum chamber in which he could investigate flight at altitudes of up to uh, 70. And uh, we have that there uh, here as a, as a fantastic exhibit.
Mm, I, I must admit, I've been on the Concord experience um, there, and it, I never got a chance to go on the real thing. So that's a, a great thing to be able to have uh, preserved for posterity. I, I would imagine, as you said, a heroic effort for sure, I would think, to get it there, because it is a massive piece of equipment. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, um, our Concord, uh, we didn't have a, a runway long enough to land one on when they were retired, and uh, the one that we have had actually been used as a spares uh, source to keep the rest of the BA fleet flying. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back on the Classic Car Show right after these messages. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Hi, this is Kevin Flood on America's Web Radio. Welcome back. I'm with Alan Wynn, director of the Brooklands Museum. It was a three-year, uh, more than three years, restoration. Um, uh, involved a huge amount of uh, volunteer time as well as uh, uh, professional uh, airframe dismantling and rebuilding work. So, yeah, yeah, another of our great restorations. I must admit, too, uh, I have a little bit of an interest in the hurricane because a friend of mine built the manifolds for it. I think yep. also it's looking at the kids when they're walking around all your static displays outside near the Concorde there, all the other planes that are out there. It's just something you can't really do anywhere else, I think. To, to run the uh, uh, the more modern ones, um, you know, maintaining um, jet engines and so forth is quite tricky. But, uh, but in most cases, yes, we can't uh, run these uh, these engines once they get 
a certain level, much more difficult to look after than piston engines. But we do maintain the aeroplanes as open uh, for visitors, and that's a big difference between us and many, well, I'd say the vast majority of the world's aviation museums. You know, we don't make people stand outside and admire them. We're delighted if they do, but we let them on board, let them sit in the seats, at the cockpit. And that happens you know, not only with our airliners, but with you know, we've got uh, combat aircraft like a two-seat Harrier, a Hawk, Hawk Hunter. You know, again, um, we allow people on board you know, sit in the seat and see what it's like to be a fighter pilot. You must um, have a large amount of volunteers to, to help out with keeping everything going, because I would imagine if you had to pay everybody, you'd be... <laughs> You'd be out of pocket fairly quickly, I would think. The, uh, the museum would be totally unviable without uh, without our huge cadre of volunteers. Uh, we have something like 800 uh, volunteers on the books, and a third of those come in at least one day a week, and another third of them in at least one day a month working for us, either as stewards or guides, uh, researchers, uh, archivists, uh, the vast bulk of our restoration and maintenance work is done by volunteers uh, they really are the lifeblood of the uh, museum and if you go to somewhere like TripAdvisor uh, what you see is this constantly repeated uh, praise for the place being such an interesting place to visit because um, yeah, there are all these volunteers around the place who are willing to engage people in conversation, talk to them, let them try things out, you know, uh, whether it you know, be something like our, uh, our Formula One simulator, you know, uh, introduce people into the cockpit of the hunter. Uh, all that uh, work is done by volunteers. And it's, a, it's an essential part of the whole ethos uh, and character of Brooklyn's. Well, I mean, I, I've been to Brooklands many times. You can imagine I'm a trust member, etc. But every time I go into the racing gallery as you go in, there's always a, um, a volunteer there, and I'll always learn something new every time I go in there. So it's great as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, uh, again, yeah, one of the things that we really want uh, people to do is it's not, uh, uh, this is not a museum where you say, oh, I've been there. Yeah. So you've ticked that box and you don't have to go back. What we want people to do is to come back and see things changing and developing. Um, you know, we're in the fortunate position now. It's a big enough and complex enough museum that if you show any real interest in the exhibits, you can't get around the whole thing in a day. And so uh, yeah, we expect people to want to come back, uh, make several visits um, over, over time. And uh, we always aim to have something new, uh, interesting for them to do, you know, give them the opportunity to, to stand and chat with uh, uh, the stewards or the people doing restorations. And uh, that's rubbed off into, for instance, uh, we have now as a sort of um, as a guest extra on the site the uh, the London Bus Museum which yes. is the biggest collection of uh, privately owned ex-London buses in the world um, and uh, you yeah, know they've uh, they moved on to site uh, back in 2000 under the new purpose-built building and uh, they've they've uh, transformed themselves from uh, what was in many ways sort of like a bus enthusiast club into a fully functioning, amazing public museum, uh, which is open every day that uh, the main Brooklyn's uh, museum is open. Everybody comes in and out through the same gate. And that's brought a whole new audience. Uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people now have seen uh, this fantastic collection of London buses. And, uh, and again, uh, selected buses, uh, the kids can get on and uh, 
go upstairs and do all that sort of thing and uh, we run bus rides in the school holidays where yeah, kids get the opportunity to, uh, to to ride around the area not just within the museum site but we take them for a ride around the uh, uh, the local area in uh, you know, uh, an ancient bus uh, it's uh, it's all again part of this whole thing of uh, letting people really enjoy things for what they are do you, do you have quite a lot of school trips visiting you i would imagine that that would be a very popular day out yes um, yeah, we um, uh, we have a we have a learning department here, which is in the process of being um, expanded because of the uh, the big um, uh, aircraft factory project. But at the moment, uh, this year, the last academic year up to um, uh, up to July, we had over thirteen thousand pupils in here on curriculum-based school visits so they don't just come here to have a, a good day out uh, they learn uh, they're, they're given learning opportunities with special programs on uh, you know, whether it be uh, history things on you know the, the second world war or um, yeah, we do we do physics and science and so forth we just instituted this week a new lesson uh, which we now offer to schools on on gears and levers, for instance. Here, so they come and they they get the tour around the museum. They get their walk through Concord, but they'll actually do a serious classroom session on you know, on a major topic that fits into their curriculum, which we can do here, which would be much more difficult to be delivered in, in the environment of a school. Uh, with a great advantage here, of course, is that we can not only show them something like gears or or, or levers or something, but we can show we can. Then and take them out and show them how they're applied in uh, motor vehicles or aeroplanes or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's an amazing learning environment. We intend to double the number of places we're able to offer uh, schools so that within three years we'll be uh, hosting 25,000 kids a, a year on those visits. That sounds like something you're very passionate about. It is. Uh, I mean, I, I, I really am. Uh, I'm a graduate um, mechanical engineer, engineering, uh, and I've always been passionate about um, explaining uh, engineering and technology to people. That was why I ended up in, um, in technical journalism. It's, uh, it's a real passion of mine you know, now uh, where I am here at the, at the museum uh, is getting this sort of thing involved. And that's why, for instance, we decided when... Yeah, what are we going to do with this decrepit old hangar we've got on site and that decrepit old building? What are we going to do with it instead of just restoring an old tin shed? There's uh, this building, we're moving it to open up part of the finishing straight of the racetrack as well. But the building, when it's put back together, is going to be the Brooklyn's Aircraft Factory. And we're going to show people how aeroplanes are designed and built. And crucially, not just show them in a sense, we're going to let the public try out the skills of building aeroplanes. These uh, skills will have them demonstrated to them, depending on uh, how old they are. Uh, get their cards stamped to say they've uh, they've worked in a particular section in the in the factory, and then they'll clock out at the end and go and uh, look at other parts of the site. And uh, that's sort of major thing. It's going to be a completely unique museum display, um, and that's going to be backed up with a new uh, new hangar to keep our active aeroplanes in, new stores, new training workshops to pass these skills on to the next generation of volunteers who are going to be looking after our aeroplanes because the people who originally built aeroplanes here at Brooklyn's are sort of slowly fading away, so we've got to pass their skills on to the next generation of volunteers. And, of course, we're going to be 
We are restoring this uh, wonderful length of the finishing straight, so we'll have a quarter of a mile of original track that we can then use for demonstrating cars and bikes um, on the very track, uh, very concrete where they uh, where they raced beforehand. It also gives us a, a wonderful big open space on which we can um, start up the engines of our active aeroplanes and taxi them around as well. And that's sort of huge uh, development in bringing Brooklands even more back to life than it is at the moment. And, uh, yeah, it's all about inspiring kids uh, to to stick with the engineering subjects that are still, uh, despite the best efforts of the City of London and the bankers, uh, yeah, the backbone of this country is still its, uh, its manufacturing. And uh, we've got a, that tradition uh, and that expertise alive. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's uh, when I left school, I, I went into an apprenticeship in a Ford dealer and went right through college and did National Craftsman and stuff like that. And I've ended up in IT now. But the same skills, problem solving and stuff like that, I think are still valid. And, and will you be offering apprenticeships, do you think, at some point or? Uh, at some stage, we intention to be able to. That we're, we're, we're aiming at a slightly lower level that we can deliver on. So it's a follow-on to the program which had some lottery funding a few years ago and the, the funding died away so we're resurrecting it it was uh, bringing it into line with uh, current practice and everything else and we'll be uh, we'll be offering training for up to 30 uh, people a year and in, in the core skills of that's the sort of first step and uh, yes uh, as we as we get bigger and um, uh, and generate more funds then we want to be able to go on and uh, and offer appre- apprenticeships in both the motor and aviation side yeah i was going to ask about that talking to the guys at bista heritage last week that's kind of what they're the line they're going along with having specialists on site as well but i guess um that's i don't know if that's going to be something you might pursue eventually i, I suppose room wise you're pretty packed out already aren't you so we are but uh, but again um uh, already on the site we only uh, other than the bus museum we have one other significant tenant uh, on the site which is the brooklyn's motor company mm. who uh, restore elderly uh, british Sporting vehicles, uh, they're specialists, particularly in Aston Martin and AC. And they not only restore these vehicles uh, in an original Brooklyn's building. It was originally the uh, the members' restaurant on top of uh, Members Hill. That dates all the way back to 1907, but uh, they uh, retain the ability to build from scratch and the appropriate licences to do so. Uh, they can build you a, a brand new AC Cobra from scratch um, and uniquely on the original jigs and bucks on which the uh, bodies of uh, the original Cobras back in the 60s were fashioned. And uh, that's uh, going to come on stream uh, next year as a fully-fledged part of the visitor experience. Mm-hmm. And people will be able to go up and stand in a safe area of the Brooklyn's uh, Cars Workshop and actually see people um, uh, using these traditional skills and uh, you're passing them on to the next generation as well. You know, hand-beating aluminium bodywork, a uh, really important thing yeah. uh, that's happening on site as well. Yeah, because, I mean, from from the minute you walk in the gate, you go into the little... Um paddock area where all the workshops are and there's the little restoration sometimes going on on the right hand side there is that volunteers doing that one usually or is yeah, that the, uh, the, the restorations uh, taking place in the uh, in the dunlop tar changing yeah. building uh, they're, they're all uh, 
being done largely by uh, by volunteers. We do have to ship some of the more uh, extreme machining and so forth out. We have some machining capability in our own workshops, but um, fine machining, creating stuff from uh, new, so that, for instance, the, the engine of uh, the Duesenberg, we've had to put a lot of that work out because that involved casting new crankcase, the machining a new crankshaft from the solid, all that sort of thing. So that that, that tends to get done by specialists, but um, uh, standard, the, 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 the rebuilding and the, uh, uh, the fettling of the minor components was all done in-house by volunteers. We're going to take a break and we'll be back on the Classic Car Show right after these messages. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Kevin Flood on America's Web Radio. Welcome back. I'm with Alan Wynn, director of the Brooklyn's Museum. Yeah, I, 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 on the in the same building as the racing car displays, I love the story that you tell in there of the engineer that once occupied that building. That's um, yeah, Robert Jackson. Yeah, yes. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, that's really important. Yeah, where we're reminding people that these things were uh, you know, taking place here. You know that. Uh, Something like you know, the uh, racing industry, which is currently worth something like six billion pounds a year to the uh, to the UK economy, had really started with preparation uh, workshops here at Brooklyn's. People like Robin Jackson and, of course, famously Thompson and Taylor, who built the Napier Railton and the later uh, Railton Special, the land speed record car, you know, built cars for, for uh, Malcolm Campbell. It's where the, uh, this is where the roots of the motor uh, were, were laid, and uh, you know, the people who were building and repairing racing cars here before the war are the ones who came back from the war and uh, started working for people like John Cooper and so forth, which is why, of course, the motor racing industry is still centred in Surrey, a historical connection going all the way back to the Brooklyn's track. And you know, the, this place was the genesis of that amazing industry, which currently powers most of the Formula One grid each uh, each week on TV. You know, the, all this stuff, um, you just trace it straight back to Brooklyn's. And uh, it's really important that we keep that story alive and remind people you know, that Grand Prix racing was taking place here in the late 1920s and that uh, this was the home of the fastest ever pre-war 500-mile race. It's quite uh, quite instructive to remember that the fastest lap that Napier Railton did around here in 1935 would have got you pole position at Indianapolis any time up until 1947. <laughs> um, and the fastest pre-war race here, the uh, 1935 BRDC 500, that was one at a speed, again by the Napier Railton, that wouldn't be exceeded as a race speed at Indianapolis till 1956. Yeah, it's incredible. And I mean, in, in reality, if it wasn't for the war, I think that, that the place would probably have stayed open as a racetrack, I guess, in some form. Yeah, it probably would have needed a lot of re uh, and rethinking, but yeah, the future had been marked out in a lot of ways with the opening of the Campbell Circuit. Yeah, in 1937, that would have, and I'm sure, had there been some uh, proper 
yeah, post-war maintenance of the of the circuit, yeah, sort of getting the concrete smooth again. But yes, we could have could have kept uh, motor racing going uh, well longer instead of uh, departing off down the track, which it did do, which was um, using airfield perimeter tracks instead, yeah, which is where Goodwood and Silverstone came from, and then. To them came near yeah, Thruxton, Snetterton, and all these places where, because of lack of Brooklands, uh, people had to go racing on airfields. Indeed, it's a, it kind of um, it brings it home when you walk round the banking that's there that people were actually travelling at that speed on that type of surface. <laughs> Um, and again, uh, when, when you look at the sheer uh, forward thinking of people like Hugh Lock King, who, who commissioned it, and Colonel Holden, who, who designed it and oversaw its construction, and here the, uh, the, this circuit is designed in 1906 when the world land speed record, uh, which was with uh, Marriott with the Stanley Steamer, yeah, the world land speed record was 126 miles an hour. And Holden expected cars to be lapping Brooklyn's at an average of 120 miles an hour. Yeah, that's what he designed the, uh, the the course for, the slowest part of the circuit. Um, uh, got a hands-off speed of 120 miles an hour. Truly, truly amazing stuff, and so so uh, such insight. Uh, yes, the uh, the concept of the big banked oval didn't really take off in um, uh, in Europe, uh, even though there's places like Montlhéry and um, Monza and Sitges, uh, but they were few and far between, and uh, road racing uh, did uh, become the dominant form of, uh, of motor racing in Europe, but um, all, all this forward thinking of running, running motor racing not as some sort of dangerous jaunt as it had become on the continent, but uh, be, became this proper arena-based uh, thing where the spectators would have a proper look at cars going round and round past them several times, uh, and the whole thing of you know, developing uh, an industry to back up what was going on, all that sort of thing, you know, coming coming uh, right here at Brooklyn's just so important, and the impact on the rest of the world, even if they didn't all go racing on banked ovals, the, the, the impact of the organisation of motor racing, the way that you built up a proper support industry around it, you know, so much of that lasts right through to the current day. Oh, it does, and I, and I think, you know, for our American listeners, the, the NASCAR concept, really, I suppose, is probably the closest, you know, uh, married thing to it, because they've got the banked ovals and an industry based right around it, all that kind of racing, so... Uh, Formula One wouldn't be around, and you know, and one of the things that I I like to see happen at Brooklyn's when I go there is people trying the test hill. <laughs> that's that's the yeah. thing that I I do find that quite impressive, and I, I'd like yeah, to try and uh, take my Model A up there at some point. <laughs> yeah, you you really must. A Model A would shoot up it, but but again, you know, the, the, the test hill that that was uh, that was uh, installed um, in 1909. Um, to address a specific need from within the motor industry, it's arguably the first purpose-built test facility uh, for the motor industry anywhere in the world, uh, because here was somewhere where manufacturers could do completely predictable, repeatable tests on things like clutches and brakes. Mm. You, uh, heading off up that hill, you know, yes, you could take your car off to Porlock or Sutton Bank or somewhere and spend days driving up and down uh, those hills, uh, but in completely uncontrolled conditions. Uh, you know, here, you could, you could set off and 
you could test um, uh, the, the uh, clutch take up on a one and five or a one and eight or a one and four slope. You'd do it right here, and you could do it all day, every day. Uh, you didn't have to wait for uh, the public to clear the road or anything like that. It was a it was a truly uh, inspiring test facility, and that that was here from uh, from 1909. And uh, the 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 track was incredibly important. It wasn't just used for motor racing it it was used for development work people the yeah, manufacturers just had cars pounding around the brooklyn's track all during the week uh doing endurance running again under controlled conditions so you just couldn't do by just driving around the slow uh, uh roads of uh, of england you know, uh, with towns in the road all that sort of thing yeah, there were no motorways no bypasses if you wanted to drive from here to scotland uh yeah you'd drive through the centres of numerous towns and the thing you had no idea when you were going to be stuck behind a farmer's cart uh, or whatever at Brooklyn's you could just go out and pound under 100 miles an hour uh, all you had to do was stop at night because neighbours didn't like the noise but uh, you could run for 12 hours at a time uh, on this circuit uh, you can go out and do 12 hours again tomorrow uh, and that was really really important in, uh, in developing high speed uh, reliable motor cars well as you say I mean the foresight that was put into the, the whole development really if you look at how old it is is, mm -hmm. is quite incredible and, and was definitely world leading so it's uh, it's yeah, great to see it coming and, back. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, it's 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 nice to hear that that other people recognised it for what it was. So when Mr. Fisher was getting ready to build Indianapolis, he came over here, had a look at it. He he came up with a very different solution for Indianapolis. You know, the nine and a half degree uh, banked corners and the and the the four straights compared with uh, the sort of continuous curve really of Brooklyn's other than the railway straight but you know uh, it was built two years before uh, he built Indianapolis and so he came here and had a look uh, saw what it was like um, yeah, Moleri in France again adopted exactly the same scientific principles for, for designing that bank circuit as Colonel Holden had used here but uh, yeah, they built it 17 years later uh, and when they didn't come here and have a look at things you ended up with um, uh, courses like Sitges where they got the maths wrong and you couldn't drive around at a constant uh, height up the banking hands off and uh, it proved to be an abject failure as a, as a racetrack. But uh, Moleri and Monza uh, and even the, uh, the the banking at the Arbus uh, ring in Germany drew directly from the experience of Brooklyn. I was going to ask you actually, did, was the uh, Railton taken over to France to do some of the filming or did, was it, um, is that... Um, done by computer, some of that. No, we did. Um, uh, we we did the uh, the high speed uh, action uh, filming for the uh, 4D theatre at Montlhery, um, which is still intact and complete, still used by the French uh, motor industry for uh, for development work. Uh, and crucially, it is a completely intact pre-war concrete banked circuit. It's as rough as Brooklyn's was in uh, in its era, maybe even rougher uh, in parts. But it but it's there. And of course, uh, for, for us, uh, very important for the Railton actually has history there in period. Um, for the first time we took it to Montlhery was back in 2011 for uh, uh, for one of the vintage revival meetings there. 
and that was the first time it had been back there since 1934 when uh, there were uh, John Cobb and fellow drivers were trying to establish a new 24-hour record because uh, they could run for 24 hours a day at Montgomery when they couldn't at uh, Brooklands and uh, Freddie Dixon lost uh, the rail for uh, in the rain at five o'clock in the morning uh, and it spun uh, went up to the shot up to the top of the banking and uh, the, the underside of the car scraped along uh, the uh, the top of the banking at Mollary until uh, the speed had decayed off far enough that it then fell down into the infield and uh, broke wow. all four wheels um, uh, didn't harm the driver but we still have the scars on the bottom of the uh, frame uh, show where it did that uh, that, that dramatic uh, um, uh, accident uh, that, that was the end of um, uh, Cobb's idea of running the car there he, uh, that was when he decided it would be much safer to take it to Bonneville and run some nice big circles on the salt uh, where you couldn't have that sort of accident um, but yeah it was, it was absolutely magic uh, I've, I've driven up twice at, uh, at Mont Larry and uh, to be able to do as we did for the filming continuous laps um, at over 100 miles an hour, yeah, two-thirds of the way up the banking, in top gear, not having to change down for corners like you do on all the Grand Prix circuits and, uh, and other modern circuits that we've run it on. Uh, you to actually just be able to set it up in top gear and just pound round and round and round uh, gives you a real feeling for what it must have been like to, uh, to, to race in period. And we're very lucky that Mollary has survived. We can at least yeah, film there and uh, and use that to to bring the experience back into our 4D theatre. Mercedes are on the same site. It's been a long time since the war. Well, yeah, and and uh, I mean we we are so pleased because although uh, uh, the site they occupy which was really the old airfield in the centre of the uh, the Brooklyn's track. It was all green, scheduled as Greenbelt, not for massive intense development, but somewhere somebody would have found a way of turning it into some sort of modern development, and uh, we're, we're so relieved that it was... Um, somebody as brave as Mercedes-Benz who said yes they would buy 150 acres of this historic site and off a property developer here they they gave 60 acres back as a as a community park which was good it's got a nice bit of banking in it then yeah they they brought the motor industry back here in a in a in a major way with a with a quite unique retail operation which includes uh, the demonstration circuits which have been so important to us in being able to demonstrate you know, our sort of motor car uh, out there and uh, you know, other things you know, when we have our Italian car day and supercar day and all that thing, being able to take everything up to Formula One cars out onto the Mercedes circuit and, uh, and run them there for our audience to see it's fantastic having that sort of uh, uh, facility available on site. And I'd like to thank you for your time today. I'm Kevin Flood and this is the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Goodbye. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.